family. Thank you, praise team. Great job of uh, preparing and setting the table this morning for, for worship. Thank you. And uh, to, today I'd invite you, if you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time, to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. And I want to talk to you today about the overlooked or the forgotten aspect element of the Gospel. All right. Uh, as you're flipping there, I want to read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians. Listen to what Paul wrote as he was discussing and telling the church at Corinth about the gospel and about his own convictions. Here's what he said. For I deliver to you of first importance what I also received. So that's very important, that first part of that verse here. He's saying this is critical, this is of first importance. And here's what he goes on to say. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Nothing shocking there that that's of first importance. Then he was buried. That's interesting, isn't it? That he says here, he puts a comma after that and says that Christ was buried. And he puts that of first importance. The question then is this. It's a part of the gospel that I don't think we always think about. Christ's burial. Now, as you know, Luke was a medical doctor. He, went, he made sure that what he recorded was right, it was succinct, and it was correct. And he spends this, this whole stretch of verses here just describing to us what the burial of Christ is. And I think there is a call here from these passages to trust, to trust Christ even in... What is that rumbling sound? What is it? Is it a plane? Okay. Let's make sure the rapture wouldn't happen. We're all getting ready to get ejected out of here for just a minute. I was like, oh man, I've often dreamed that this would happen. I would be called out of this world in the pulpit, but not to terrorize children. So I thought there for a minute we were all getting called home. Uh, oh, complete derailment. Anyway, where, where was I? Where was I? Yes. So, uh, you know, how important is the burial of Christ? It beckons us to trust Christ, even in this aspect. I think that Luke is calling us to do that. So with, with your Bibles there in hand, uh, let's now look at this. Last week we looked at Jesus' death. Now we're going to see his burial. All right, so beginning in verse 50. This is the Word of God, church. Hear it. Now, there was a man named Joseph. From the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council. Keep in mind, that's the council that had been seeking to put Jesus to death, right? So he's a part of this Pharisaical council. But notice how it describes him here. A good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. So he was not in agreement with what they had been plotting and scheming and trying to trick Jesus up with. Rather, it says here, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been yet laid, yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women, remember the women we were introduced to in Luke chapter 8, they're still here with him. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Amen. May God have blessing on the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it, church. But the word of our God endures forever. You know, I, I think today I just want to pray before I start preaching and start unpacking this for you. Just, let's just talk to the Lord for just a minute. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is your word. 
and we need it. We need it like we need water, like we need food. We do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth, that your word of life, this is your word of sanctification, this is your word of salvation, Lord. Open our eyes, God, to respond to your gospel. Build us up in your grace, even as we attend to your word today. I ask these things in the precious name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, how important is the burial of Jesus? Why is it ordered in 1 Corinthians as one of the first things that Paul receives? Do we think of it in terms of being a critical part of the gospel? Is it an element worth taking a Sunday morning and unpacking and reflecting on? Uh, you know, in some ways in our culture, we just want to kind of push this aside. We live in a culture of snippets, of audio bites, of short clips, right? So we just give us the highlights and the main things. Give it to us in 30 seconds. And if you had to whittle the gospel down, would the burial of Jesus be one of the things that you would whittle out and be seen as less important? And should we do that? Those are some of the questions I was asking myself this week uh, as I was unpacking this passage. So let's Let's think about this together here, okay? Let's think about this together. Uh, First of all, um, there are direct important implications of the burial of Jesus, and there are kind of secondary implications here. And one of the second, I'm going to start with sort of a less important secondary and move to more important, okay? So we're going to go from less important to more important, but still important. And that is this. One of the first things I think we see in the text is simply this. The burial of Jesus teaches us Respect for the human body. It teaches us respect for the human body, even in death. Let me see if I can sort of build you a biblical theology of this real fast. Uh, In the Old Testament, when Joseph was in Egypt and he was about to die, he told the Israelites one of his last instructions before he died was, take my bones back with you to where? To the promised land, right? Don't leave my body. Don't leave my bones here in this pagan land of Egypt. Take me back with you when you go back. Now, there's going to be 400 years between when Joseph dies in Egypt and when Moses instructs the Israelites, we're going back to the promised land. We're going back. But Moses instructs the people to do what? Get Joseph's bones and bring them back with you. Uh, When Moses gets to the point where he's almost ready to go into the promised land and he stands up on the mountain and God whispers in his ear, you're not going in. Shortly after that, Moses dies. And who buries Moses? Do you remember who buried Moses? Who was that? God buried Moses. There's this weird dispute in Jude that I don't really know what to do with you have thoughts on and I'm happy to hear it, between Satan and uh, I think it's the archangel Michael over the body of Moses. I don't know if Satan was planning some kind of like weekend at Bernie scenario with Moses' body to stand him up and be like, don't trust the God of Israel, instead follow Baal. I don't know what he was planning, but he wanted Moses' body for something, you know. Uh, So there, and Michael just rebuked him and said, the Lord deal with you. And so we see the Lord buries Moses I don't think to this day we still exactly know where God buried him. He buried him somewhere. Uh, We fast forward in time a little bit here to King Saul. King Saul dies in battle and really what I would call a cowardly action. He sort of does a commit suicide uh, and they take his body and the body of his son, the the enemy does, back to their 
their capital, and they display the bodies, right? Kind of reminds you of uh, like Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, they would, as a warning to anybody that might cross them, right? Those dead bodies hanging up there. But it was to the shame of Jewish people. If the body was not buried, it was to the shame of the people for it to stay up. And so what happens? David orders a group of men to go cut Saul and Jonathan's bodies down, return them back to Israel, and give them a proper burial with the rest of their family. And then after Saul's death, there's a group of Gideonites that he had killed. He had made a treaty Saul had with them, and then he had violated that treaty, and he had killed some of their men. And they come to David, and they want restitution. And David said, what do you want? I'm sure he was thinking of money. And they said, we want the sons of Saul. And so David delivers seven sons over to be executed and hung. And they leave them to the shame. They leave their bodies out. There's this beautiful passage that's sad and beautiful at the same time of a mother's love. And the mother comes and shoes the animals away from pecking at their eyes or, or other animals from tearing at their legs and pulling it apart. And eventually David hears this, is moved, has the bodies cut down and buried properly. And so there is a, all the way back to the Old Testament and the patriarchs, there is this, uh, there is this, intrinsic respect and value for the human body. It is made in the image of God and it is not to be just left out. You know, what would have happened to Jesus if these verses hadn't taken place? What if Joseph had never collected the body of Jesus? It was not uncommon for the Romans to just leave crucified Jews hanging on the cross, right? Again, kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean, warning anybody who may be causer of treason stealing, murdering, to warn them not to do so. And it is to the shame of the family and the shame of the individual that the birds land on their shoulders and have their fill of their flesh. And so uh, there is something important here about that. Another thing that I think is kind of critical here in burial is that I think it makes Jesus like most of us, right? Uh, Jesus is like us in every way. He, will, he tasted death and then he was buried. One day we will taste death. Most of us more than likely will be buried in one form or another, be it in a casket or in an urn, whatever that may end up being, or at sea in some cases. And so in all respects and in all ways, Jesus enters into every possible experience that is human in the same way that we are, making him like us, identifying with us, and yet utterly unique at the same time. So the burial of Jesus is an important thing. Respect for the human body is there. Now let's look at this passage here and dive into this text. Now there was a man named Joseph. From, uh, he was from a Jewish town of Arimathea. So he's not from Jerusalem. He's from this other kind of outlying town. And it says here he's of the council. This, we don't have a whole lot on this guy. We've got a few things here. What are we learning? Well, one, this guy's got money, Right? You don't get on the council unless you got money. This is a man of means, by all means, right? Uh, I have the blessing of having uh, rich relatives. You know, if you've ever been to Sevier County before, you've heard the name Ogle before. Remember Ogle's Water Park? I had a cousin that married into that family. They don't call themselves rich. They say they're blessed, and that's very nice for them, right? <laughs> I call them rich. You know, they got money upon money, and I think it's great. They're lovely believers. They, they fund missions and praise God for them, right? Just because you got money does not make you wicked automatically, right? They're, God uses a lot of people with means to do his bidding and his will. So this is a guy who is a man of means. Uh, it says here he's not from Jerusalem. He's from this other town of Arimathea. He's a, he's a rich man from another town. Now, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with burial rituals of rich people. 
But generally speaking, uh, you take them back and they sort of have a family cemetery or a family place. We can relate to this as Appalachians, right? Uh, Many of you, my family, the Tylers, there's a cemetery in Scott County, Virginia that is a Tyler family cemetery. And when Tylers die for generations, they took them to Scott County and buried them there in the Tyler family cemetery, and that's where you go. In a similar fashion, older Jewish families, they would hewn out these tombs, and if you died, you would go into that tomb. As we see in the text here, they'd wrap your body in there until all the flesh and soft part decomposes. Then they would take those bones and put them in a box about the size of a femur, Okay, because that's the largest bone in your body is the femur. And then they would stack those boxes up. And when Uncle Ned died, you know, you laid him on there till he decomposed, put him in the box, stacked him with his wife. uh, And then on and on it goes to the whole family kind of shares this tomb. And that's sort of what it was like. Fascinating, isn't it? It's like, Pastor, this is a real uplifting message today. (laughs) So we're really getting after it today. Uh, Anyhow, but a few things that interest me here. First of all. Uh, Joseph here is, um, he's on this council, but as we've seen in the next verse, he's not in agreement with it. He's described here as a good and righteous man. I think this is Luke's way of telling us he's a follower of Jesus. He's a follower of his teachings. Now, be it he's in an unlikely position. He's sort of a flickering lamp in a time of, of a very dark moment here. But he says here, he did not consider... To their decision or action, he was never in agreement with what they did and how they treated Jesus. And it says here he was looking for the kingdom of God. He knew his scripture. He knew his Old Testament. He was looking for Christ. Uh, another thing that's fascinating to me here about Joseph is what we're seeing in the text is Jesus is going to be in his borrowed tomb. Remember what I said earlier? Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, right? He goes and has supper in a borrowed room with the disciples. He's going to be on Barabbas' borrowed cross. Now he's going to lay in Joseph's borrowed tomb so that he can ascend to a, a seat of authority that only he can possess. Isn't that a beautiful thought and interesting thing there? But Joseph, really, when he died, should have had arrangements to be with his family back in Arimathea. But for some reason... Unbeknownst to him, and probably unbeknownst to the larger Jerusalem community, he decided he would have a tomb made for himself in Jerusalem, and he would be buried in Jerusalem. Just so happened to be the spot that he purchased and picked and had worked on, and many uh, commentators and, and ancient Israelite scholars believe that it would have taken around 50 days of labor to hew out this tomb for Joseph of Arimathea. So you think about how costly that would be for a skilled laborer to hew out a tomb for 50 days, okay? Uh, he decides he's going to buy this lot. He's going to pay somebody for 50 days to hew this thing out. And it's just going to so happen be right down the road from the place of the skull where Jesus is going to be executed and going to give up the ghost, right? Gonna, that's what the King James says, going to die for the sins of humanity. What do we learn in that? Well, one thing I see in this is the absolute sovereignty of God. You know, that God is in complete control. He had the place where Jesus' body would lay, where he would be buried. And he had it right down the road, really close for convenience sake. And in addition to this, I also see the use of human agency within God's plan. We're not a bunch of robots just being robotically programmed. We are making real decisions that have real consequences, and yet God remains sovereign and in control. It's, uh, I like to think of it as a divine tension, or to put it another way, uh, like a train. Who likes trains here? Do you like trains? 
they're good. How many tracks you got to have on a train to get to go forward? Two, right? One for each side. They run parallel to get you to the destination it needs to go. Both keep the train on the track. And that's what's happening here. God's sovereignty and, and Joseph of Arimathea's free human agency, God's plan taking place and using both to accomplish this. Um, so, neat thing there in how God is kind of pulling this together. Another thing we see in this burial is the reality of Jesus' death, right? Uh, generally speaking, you, you don't bury things that aren't dead, right? I mean, I feel like this is a very simple concept, right? If somebody's not dead, don't bury them dead. I'm, I'm very close to using an illustration. Have you ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Where you're going around, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet. Well, he will be by the next time you come around. <laughs> they just knock him over the head and throw him on the body pile. Right? You bury people that are dead, right? That's what you do. And so Jesus here is showing that same humility, right, of being born into a human family, right, and then being giving up the spirit, right, in this moment. And now he will subject himself to the humility of being buried in a tomb. So we see here God is showing us a reality here. But there's something unique about this death, though, something that is different. Do me a favor for just a minute. Keep your thumb in, in Luke 23 and flip with me over to Matthew uh, chapter 14 for just a minute. The Gospel of Matthew 14. Matthew 14, 12, okay? Here's what it says. So it's the context here of this passage. John the Baptist has been preaching. Herod has listened to him. I think Herod has sort of a, a fascination with John. I, I don't know that it's really like a spiritually moved Herod that's fascinated with him, but his stepdaughter does an illicit dance, and he says, I'll give you anything you want. So she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so he does that. He orders for John the Baptist to be executed. And his disciples go and collect John's deceased body. And this passage deals with that. And I want you to, as we read this, I want you to pay attention to the pronouns. Pronouns are important. There's a lot of talk about pronouns these days. And in, in particular here in this passage, the pronouns are important. I want you to, to remember them. Look at them here. And his disciples came and took the body and they buried, what's it say, church? It. They buried it. It doesn't say they buried John. It doesn't say they buried him. It says it buried it. What are some implications of this? Well, one implication is that whenever a Christian dies or a believer dies, that part of them is, uh, that's left behind is not truly them, right? It is a part of them, but it's not truly them. You know, it, there's a healing that's going to take place. John the Baptist has been glorified and healed. You know, you, you look at what John says in Revelation whenever he meets the fellow elder there and he's tempted to fall down on his knees and worship him because he's reached perfection. It's a beautiful thing to think about. Our loved ones, when they die in Christ, when they fall asleep in Christ, we bury the body, we bury it, but it is not them, right? It is, it is separate from them. The essence of who they are, the soul is gone. Now, flip back to where we are today for just a minute. And look at verse 53 with me. And again, if you're a highlighter or you're an underliner or you're a circler, whatever it is, please circle the pronouns. What's it say? Then he took, what's it say, church? It down and wrapped, what's it say? It 
in the linen, in the linen shroud and laid, now what's the pronoun? Oh, him in the tomb. Wait, 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 wait. So we went from it, 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 him. There's something going on here. There's a uniqueness here. It's a subtle uniqueness, but Luke is capturing here something for us, okay? What is he capturing? What is unique about Christ's death and the unique about these pronouns here? I want you to think about this. Remember what I said just a minute ago about John the Baptist and about the uniqueness here of his death that they said it was it and that John will be raised and he'll be glorified and it will be, you know, it is the body. What is different here? There's an intrinsic connection here between Jesus and the body so that when the body is put in there, Jesus is going to take that thing back up, right? I want you to think about this. Let me me expand this and say this in a little bit different way, but the same thing. When we all get to heaven, I almost thought I was going to bust in the song, didn't you? (laughs) What a day of rejoicing that will be. (laughs) When we all get to heaven, we will be glorified and our bodies that we have will have been remade and they will not carry the scars and the marring of sin any longer. Is that true? That's true, say amen. Here's my question. Is everybody in heaven like that? Everybody is like that except one. And whose body carries the scars and the mars of sin still? It's Jesus' body, isn't it? What's, Jesus, what's Luke doing in, in saying this? He's doing several things. He's inviting us to trust him again. Listen, when he stood in the temple and he told the Pharisees, said, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Uh, Those fools thought he was talking about the building we talked about last week with the big 60 foot curtain and 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 the golden lamps and all that. That's not what he was talking about. What was he talking about? He was talking about the the body. Tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. He had every intention of taking it back up. And what we'll see next week is he takes it back up to the glory of God. Isn't that a beautiful, amazing thing? Here in the pronouns and the usage that Luke has and how unique this is, we are being beckoned to trust Christ as he is being buried. It's amazing. goes on to say in verse 54, it was... The day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed. Now let me make one quick point. These are the women we met back in Luke chapter 8. These women have been faithful and supportive of Jesus throughout his entire ministry. And while the disciples are fleeing away, who emerges to take care of the body of Christ? It's not Peter who said, I'll follow you to the grave, Lord. Peter's ran out into the darkness in tears. Remember that? It's not John. It's not any of these other men. It is, it is going to be two Pharisees, right? The Bible will tell us that Nicodemus is probably with Joseph of Arimathea. I would say being a man of means, he probably had other men who would help him. And the women who have been faithful and courageous throughout this whole time are going to be the ones that will tend to the broken body of Jesus as it is placed in the tomb. The most unlikely of places here in that culture, right? Remember what I told you? They couldn't, in the temple, the women could just go so far, right? 
Now the access is given, the shroud is torn, and it is the courageous women who are, are being a part of taking care of what Jesus has left to be taken care of, right? He could come back anytime, and he will, but we're seeing a, a, a level of valor that is there. You know, um, in thinking about faith coming from unlikely spots like Pharisees on the council or women that are there to step up when it counts the most, C.J. Riley says this, We know nothing of Joseph except what, he heard, what, what is told here of, to us. In no part of the Acts or the Epistles do we find any mention of his name. At no former period of the Lord's ministry does he ever uh, come forward. His reason for not openly joining the disciples before, he cannot explain. But here at the eleventh hour, this man is not afraid to show himself one of our Lord's friends. And the very time when the apostles had forsaken Jesus, Joseph is not ashamed to show his love and respect. Others have confessed him while he was living and doing miracles. It was uh, reserved for Joseph to confess him when he was dead. The history of Joseph is full of instruction and encouragement. It shows us that Christ and his friends of whom the church knows little or nothing, friends who profess less than some do, but friends who in real love and affection are second to none. Beautiful, beautiful insight into this passage and into Joseph's life. And I think those same things apply to Nicodemus and also these women that are there too. Uh, The women come and followed him to take care of the body where they're going to lay him. Now, a couple of things here. I know you're just fascinated here with burial rituals, and it seems to be a sermon all about that. But in in the United States, we kind of have this like, we, we drag funerals out, like compared to other cultures. Like embalming was largely not done in the United States until the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. And they embalmed him, and then they kind of did like this, Funeral on parade, train procession back to Illinois where he was from to bury him. I don't know if you knew this or not, but now you do, right, for all you American history folks. And so since we have refrigeration and we have embalming, we sometimes draw funerals out a week or two from when a person dies. But in a lot of people in the 1040 window, you know, like tropical, subtropical areas, I guess technically we're subtropical, but we have refrigeration and embalming, uh, it is the law to bury somebody quickly. Like with it in Brazil, it's the law that you bury them within 24 hours. Like you got to get them in. You know our friend Anthony who comes and preaches here, sometimes for me, from Pakistan. It's a very warm climate. I don't have to leave much to your imagination, but you know, the Jews did not embalm. They didn't practice what the, what the Egyptians did. They, didn't, they saw that as you know, pagan practices. We're not going to do that to our dead, that respect for the body that's there. And so you got a hot climate, you got a dead body, you got no refrigeration, and you got no embalming. I think you know what happens next, right? It gets ugly quick. <laughs> you know, I was asking Anthony when his mother passed, I said, what was that like? He said, she died that morning at 5 a.m. and she was in the ground by 5 p.m. I was like, that quick? He was like, yeah. So that's the way it is for everybody in Pakistan. That's the, way, that's the way we do it. And here, remember what time Jesus died? Probably around 3 o'clock, right? Sabbath is setting in, 6 o'clock. They got to they shut everything down by the word of God, right? The instruction of the Sabbath that is here. They, they're in a rush to get this done. They're not going to be able to do the proper job that they want to do to prepare the body to lay there. They're going to cover it in oils and they're going to put all kinds of flour, different things like that, just a part of their ritual of uh, doing that to help the body and that process in the tomb. And uh, so they're going to kind of do what they can while they can, grab what they can when they can, get in there and get it done before 6 or 7 o'clock there and the official holiday of the Sabbath starts. Now, 
Can you imagine the temptation that must have been felt to go back on the Sabbath and finish the job you started of preparing the body of Jesus, the one you love and follow? Let's be quite honest. It would make sense. It would be a good use of your time. It is pragmatic that you would go back and go ahead and finish the job you started the next morning because the light was failing and all that and everyone was going away, to go ahead and get that done and put that behind you and move forward. But what do these women do? They wait. Why? They're still observing the Sabbath, even in a moment of deep grief, even in a moment where pragmatically it doesn't make sense. They're still going to do what God's Word says because they understand the importance of obedience. Now let me say this real quick about obedience in the life of a Christian. Some sort of try to set obedience up against the grace of God. Well, we're under a new covenant now. We don't have to be obedient to the Word of God. No, we're obedient to the Word of God because of the grace of God, right? We're obedient to Christ because of what He's done for us, and we want to obey the Word of God. We keep the Word because of the joy and the love that's found in having fellowship with God. The world wants to pit that against each other, and even people now. I was listening to a great sermon by Tim Keller this week, and he was sharing about, you know, his context is completely probably opposite of what Carter County is. He is preaching in New York City. He is preaching to a group of uh, Manhattan folks. So they're, you know, it's a very blue state, people that could probably classify themselves as leftist or, you know, progressives. You know, it's probably opposite of this context. But he made a really good point, and I think this is true of not just people in blue states and, and leftists, but also people in red states and on the right, and conservatives. And that is this. We don't like the concept of the lordship of Jesus. It's something, something about that grinds against the culture we live in, right? What we like is we like shades in between, you know? We like, well, yeah, I'm a Tennessee fan, but, you know, I mean, as long as we're doing good, you know what I mean? Like, we want a shade of orange that isn't true orange, right? And we want to kind of bring that over to Christianity and say, well, you know, I believe like 97% of the Bible, but there's about, you know, a handful of verses that I'm just not on board with. Keller goes on to make the point. Who gave you the authority to make the decision on which ones you're going to like and follow and which ones you're not? You're setting yourself up as a judge over it. Now, the call is from all of it, from the first in the beginning to the last, amen, right? These women are not going to shortchange obedience to Scripture, even if it is uh, pragmatic, even if it is emotionally soothing, even if it is going to help them in their grief process. They're not going to shortchange obedience here. They're going to be obedient to the Lord and, and observe the Sabbath. One other thing about this, there's a call here, I think, to joy. You know, there's a, there's a, rabbit, a rabbitical um, teaching there's kind of an irony here. You know, Jesus here just gave up his, his life on the cross as a payment for mankind. And now you can see this as he's in the tomb resting, right? It's a Sabbath rest. By the way, who came up with the Sabbath anyway? The Pharisees? Now he made the world and on the seventh day he rested. It was God who made it. And Jesus made it even clearer. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? You're getting things a little bit backwards here. There's a joy in Sabbath rest that I think we're seeing here. Uh, there's a school of thought among Jews in, in trying to be faithful to Sabbath rest. And uh, I think it's Shammai is what they call it. It's Shammai school of thought. And this is fast, fascinating to me. But they'll say, in order to properly absor- observe the Sabbath, a follower of Yahweh must only do things that spark joy in knowing Yahweh. 
So they warned their people, don't even pray for the sick on the Sabbath, because that's kind of a negative downer thing to do, but only do things that center on joy and being positive in the Lord. I thought that was interesting. I'm not necessarily advocating for that, but that's interesting because I think we get kind of confused on how do we properly be obedient to the Sabbath. But these women are resting here. They should be called here to rest in this work that Christ has done and completed, and that's the call for us today. So to land this plane, the price is paid here completely. The body in the tomb, Jesus truly relating to us on all levels from birth to life, to death, to burial. What is happening in this passage? Well, Jesus kept the law perfectly in His life. He paid the price completely. He faced death willingly. He is buried accordingly, as He said He would be, fulfilling prophecy and relating to us. And He awaits resurrection victoriously in this passage and now offers life abundantly to us all. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for this passage. You stand here and beckon us, even in this passage here, of the burial and call us to trust you. Lord, help us to do that today. Help us to run headlong to you and to trust you and you alone. Lord, it is amazing to us. The detail that we are easy to overlook here, how it fulfills the promises, how, Lord, you took back up what you laid down how you have not lost a shred of your humanity in doing so. Lord, we thank you for this, that you have truly had a 100% human experience and yet make a way for us. Lord, if there's anyone here today who is far from you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself in saving power of grace, that they would know you this day. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today you have heard the gospel clearly. You have heard it called from the very first verse today that Jesus was lived a perfect life that he died as a sacrifice for sin and that he was buried and was raised if you have not made this right with the lord if you have not accepted this and believed this at your core won't you do that today or if you'd like to be part of this church won't you start that process as we sing please stand